inspiration. You were there to help me out. You just saw the need and said, can I help you? We learn a lot from watching other horses and watching other riders. I'm Julie Goodnight, and thanks for listening to my podcast about horse training and equestrian sports. Be sure you hit subscribe so you won't miss a single episode. And if you get a chance, it'd be awesome if you'd give this podcast a rating and review. It helps me out a lot, and it helps other horse lovers just like you find this podcast. Since the last time we recorded, I've been on the road quite a bit attending clinics. Recently, we drove up to Jackson Hole, Wyoming to do a one-day clinic for W.F. Young and Company and Equus Magazine had a -a win-a-day contest, and one lucky winner up there in Jackson Hole invited nine of her closest friends, and we had a clinic. It was fabulous. A lot of great horses and riders, some really interesting horses in that clinic, and we had a great time. It was a fabulous day sponsored by W.F. Young and Company. They're the maker of Shoshin products, Absorbine, and many other great innovative products for horses. And of course, most of you are familiar with Equus Magazine. And uh, about once a year, they offer one of these win-a-day contests that are, (laughs) for any lucky winner, a fabulous, um, fabulous opportunity. So I'll be looking for that for the next one coming up next year. And also... In, in a month or two, Equus Magazine will be featuring an article on that clinic, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. We had beautiful weather while we were up there. We took our living quarters horse trailer, but we didn't take horses. We took mountain bikes instead, a bunch of uh, our fun toys, and had a great time camping up there in beautiful Jackson Hole. If you've never been there, you just truly cannot imagine the beauty up there. It's truly one of our nation's treasures. This month, I'll be a presenter for the CHA virtual conference on October 30th. It lasts all day, and I will be one of many great speakers and trainers that will give webinars all day long about horsemanship, horse management, and safety. It's for both English and Western programs, primarily targeted for riding instructors, but open to anyone and certainly educational for everyone. CHA is a nonprofit organization that promotes safety, and primarily towards that end, they certify riding instructors and accredit riding programs. I've been involved with CHA since I first became a certified master instructor with them about 25 years ago, and the CHA virtual conference is open to anyone, and just by being a loyal podcast listener, you can get the member's rate of only $95 for this educational conference. That's a $60 savings, by the way. All you have to do is go to CHA.horse, click on the International Conference, register, and enter the priority code JG, and you'll get the member discount. So that's CHA.horse, and click on the International Conference link. I'm looking forward to closing out 2020, and I'm looking ahead to 2021 with interest and enthusiasm, I should say. I have three horse expos to book for the spring of 2021, and I'm slowly but surely booking more and more private clinics for next year. 
That just means I come to your facility and conduct a clinic for one or more people that you organize. For more information on organizing a private clinic, please go to juliegoodnight.com slash private clinic. And while you're there, check out all my online training programs and streaming services at signin.juliegoodnight.com. Plus, we've got innovative grooming tools, tack, equipment, and educational resources at shop.juliegoodnight.com. Today's topic is part two on the genetic profile test report for my foster horse, Doc Gunner. Actually, now that we have more information on his genetic profile, we realized we needed to change his name to Doc. Turns out he's not related to the famous deaf stallion Gunner. Doc is a four-year-old coming five deaf paint horse rescued in December of 2019 from a kill pen in Kansas. He was rehabilitated in Oklahoma and ultimately sent to me in the middle of May of 2020. That was about five months ago. Since then, we've been sharing his training live on Facebook, and you can view that on YouTube or Facebook. Keep in mind that we had no history on this horse prior to his rescue. I've had Doc here at my ranch in Colorado for five months of rehab and under-saddle training. We've had our challenges, mostly medical ones, not training-related, but I'm happy to report he's going very well under saddle now at the walk, trot, and canter, both in the arena and out on the trail. He, in fact, loves going out on the trail. It's amazing how he just looks down the road and is eager to get there all by himself. He, he's We've taken him out exclusively by himself to date, and he's just enjoyed every trip. We're super excited about how well he's doing under saddle. We're super pleased about his health in in part due to the information we found out from his genetic report. And we now believe he's ready for adoption to the right family. So if you're interested in adopting a beautiful and very special horse, uh, be sure to go to myrighthorse.org and look for Doc. A month ago, we sent DNA material to Edelon Diagnostics in California for full genetic testing on Doc. Given that we knew nothing about this horse's breeding or history, it was important for me to get as much data as I could. My job as his foster trainer is to give this horse the rehab and training he needs to be successful for the rest of his life so that he'll never be at risk again. The more answers I have, the easier it is for me to do my job. So in last month's podcast, we talked about the genetic profile of Doc regarding his unusual coloration, his deafness, his health conditions, and his behavioral traits. It's fascinating information, and it's invaluable for us in terms of managing his health. I'm happy to report that since getting the genetic report, we've been able to make adjustments to Doc's nutrition and his health care, and he is really just blossoming and taking off. He's putting on weight. He's putting on muscle. He's full of energy now where he was somewhat lethargic in the past, so we're super excited about that. We're super, super grateful for the information we got from Edelon Diagnostics. So today we're going to discuss Doc's ancestry report and how we can find out more about his real pedigree, find some close relatives of his and um, possibly even figure out who his sire and dam are. 
Plus, we'll talk about how DNA testing works, all the exciting research being done in this field, and how you might learn more about your horse through DNA testing. Today's topic is all about equine DNA testing. I'm super excited to have two expert guests with me today. This is an area I've been fascinated in for some time, but but things are changing and growing. The research is just uh, exponential, um, almost on a weekly basis. So it's super fun to get caught up on it. We're going to consider uh, DNA testing that tells us about a horse's health, uh, their color genetics, their performance potential, ancestry, and even get into some behavioral traits that, that I find super fascinating. So first of all, before we get started, I'd like to introduce my guest to you. We have, uh, same as we had last month on the podcast, Krista Lafayette from Edelon Genetics. And Krista has been in the biotech, biomedical field in Silicon Valley for quite some time. She's a proven tech biz executive, and she's also a horse owner, an avid competitor, and the CEO of Edelon Genetics. So welcome, Krista. Thank you. Appreciate it. And I, I, it's a pleasure to be here. Super exciting. Yeah, I'm excited to continue our conversation about genetics and also about my foster horse, Doc Gunner. And also joining us today is Dr. Samantha Brooks. She's currently with the University of Florida in the equine science program there. And in particular, she's part of the University of Florida Genetics Institute. She has uh, quite an impressive academic career starting at the University of Kentucky uh, Black Equine Research Center, which is a renowned, internationally renowned uh, equine center, uh, also at Cornell University and now on it to University of Florida, by the way, uh, my home state. And uh, my sister is a big, big, big Gators fan, um, still up there in Gainesville, Florida. So uh, also Dr. Brooks is a lifelong horsewoman, and I understand quite an active three-day eventing competitor. Um, And I was particularly interested in your research, Dr. Brooks, because I know you've you've done a lot on laminitis, and that is a condition uh, that horse owners have uh, all struggled with for so long. And so I find that uh, research interesting. But you've also been researching other areas like sarcoids and some neurological conditions. And these things have really uh, important value, I would think, to the health of the horse. So thank you for all of that. And thanks for joining us today, Dr. Brooks. No problem. Thank you for the invitation and uh, go Gators. Just for your sister there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now for sure my sister will actually listen to my podcast. So I want to get started with you. <laughs> Krista, if you could just give us kind of an overview of the history and the state of equine genetic research. I've been familiar with it I won't say since the very beginning, but I've I've been involved with Colorado State University as a part of their equine science advisory board for about 15 years. And, and so I've followed genetic research through that program. And then I became interested a few years ago, and this is how you and I met, because I started hearing 
through the rumor mill that there was someone doing um, research on horse behavior as it relates to genetics, that we can actually identify behavior traits through genetics. And that really sucked me into the world of genetic research. And um, because as a horse trainer, um, you know, all we do is try to influence behavior. And so it seemed immediately like a way I could learn more about horse behavior and how to deal with individual horses. So that's how I got interested. And then that led me to Edelon Diagnostics, who, as far as I know, it was the only uh, research company I could find that I could access that was looking into the behavioral traits. But that's how you and I, Krista, became involved. And um, since then, we've gotten uh, really involved in this foster horse, Doc Gunner, paint horse, who has some uh, very interesting genetic characteristics. But before we get into Doc Gunner, Krista, tell me a little bit about how this whole thing started and and what what it is actually involved in getting genetic testing done on your horse. Well, actually, so the second question is simpler than the first. <laughs> um, genetics sounds scary, as does any medical testing um, or veterinary testing. But in fact, it's it's incredibly simple and non-invasive because your DNA is carried almost everywhere in your body and it's easily accessible by a simple hair sample. So sometimes people who are unfamiliar with genetic testing have this vision of us, you know, grabbing their horse and pulling out a liver to look at their DNA, which is just not <laughs> not exactly accurate. Um, at this point, the way to do it is simple. You just pull a hair sample from the mane or from the tail. We always ask for tail because what ends up happening when you pull the hair from the horse, which we do anyway on a regular basis and they do themselves, is you have these nice roots, these, these root balls on the end of the hair. And those contain beautiful little samples of DNA for us to take into the lab and extract and then read from that point. It's simple, it's painless, it's non-invasive, um, and most horses don't mind. Now, I'm a little geeky, so I'm going to ask you a question here. So I'm uh, picturing you getting a tail hair. I mean, we've done it several times, so we you know, know how what to wrap it in. It's and you receive it, and you see those little root balls on the end, and then, mm -hmm. you know, like, do you, like, scrape that off and then cook it up <laughs> into something, or how, how does that actually work? So, it's it's funny. It's so simple that it's it's sort of silly, but what we ask people to do when they pull these root hairs is simply put it in clean, dry paper, because DNA is remarkably stable, right around room temperature, Heat and bleach and acid and UV light, all of that are the enemies of DNA. But anything of a normal room temperature, clean and dry um, type of packaging makes it super simple to send it in, and it's almost indestructible in that state. When we receive these samples and they're wrapped up in paper, um, like the sample submission form that we provide when people order this testing, we literally take the piece of paper, we we photograph everything that comes in from the client to make sure we know what state it was in and in case there are pop possibilities of things being compromised or wet or swapped or any of that, we make sure that we have documentation 
Then we pick up the paper sample with gloved hands. We fold back the paper and cut the root hairs selectively into individual containers. So our hands never touch the roots that come in from the owner or the horse. All the ones you intend to use, each one. Yes. (laughs) We ask people to send in like, you know, between 30 and 50 hairs, but really something about the size of your pinky. We don't really need that much. We don't need 30 to 50 root balls, but you just don't know when people are pulling hair, you know, they don't understand all the time what exactly they're looking for. So we find that if we ask for about that size of hair, the horse doesn't mind, the person doesn't mind. And at the end of the day, we have plenty of DNA and we can run really nice um, assays on a sample size like that. Mm-hmm. And then what? <laughs> all right. So the hair sample comes in. We photograph it, we document it, we double check it against what the owner said that they sent in. And then we're going to take the root balls, we dump them into, I'm going to simplify this, we dump them into carefully into plastic containers that are specifically designed to do DNA extraction and handle the solvents and reagents that we use. We will do a process of extracting the DNA, that is we dissolve uh, the root balls, and then we carefully go through a process of rinsing and spinning and extracting so that all that is left at the end of the day is a little ball of DNA from your horse. That DNA is then carefully quantified so we know how much we have. And it's then run through our platform where we look at the genetic sequences and see which of the genetic sequences, what parts of your horse's code match things that we know. In other words, um, does your horse have the code for splash white five? And if it does, then our assay will indicate there's a there's one or two copies of said variant. And in case of splash white five, we think there should only be one. And then we can check back with the horse and the owner and say, look, looks like your test says your horse carries a variant for splash white five. Does your horse have white on it anywhere? Does it have a blue eye? Does it have any, any trouble hearing? Um, and that's sort of a, part of our interactive process. But the core of your question is, how do we extract it? It's simple, hair samples. Yes, we can do blood. Yes, we can do other body materials, but the simplest one is just a pulled hair sample. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. I, I'm a person that I just love to know how things work. And I know genetics and genome research is really quite complicated, but it's nice for us, I think, on the consumer end to understand what it what what's happening with the genetic material. And also, I know because I've done it several times, when you request a, a genetic testing on your horse and you send in the sample, you also grant permission for Adelon Diagnostics to do further research on um, just equine genetics in general and your horse's DNA in particular. Could you talk a little bit about why that is and why that's important. Certainly. So when we accept DNA samples from folks, they have um, voluntary options. They can opt into the research. They can opt in for us to contact them. Uh, They can opt into basically the interactive experience that is this bigger collaboration. So the way traditional medicine and biotech discovery works is People take in samples in a lab and they run the samples and they try to discover new things, but it's kind of in a vacuum. They don't really know a whole lot about the samples other than maybe what the veterinarian or the doctor has told them, but they don't, they don't know much outside of that. 
with horses, we have this really unique opportunity to take in the DNA samples, allow people to provide extra information, photographs and videos, and, you know, how a horse moves, um, the, the show scores, how a horse looks, you know, how a horse is built. All of these little things, these little bits of information are really vital to putting it together with the DNA to discover how it works and what affects the way a horse looks, moves, thinks, and behaves. And the key for those bits of information is held by the person who owns and knows that horse. And I think that there's not enough appreciation in the scientific community for the horse owner, for the animal owners, the people who know these animals. They live and breathe with these animals every day. They really know them. And you'll find that when we work on the research projects, when we collaborate with the owners, when we ask them about their animals or about the photos or about the videos that they send in, they are delighted to work together. And we find that that relationship, that collaboration really lends itself to accelerating discovery. We find things so much faster when we work together. And when we find those things, we're then able to share them. It's a large collaboration. I think that's really fascinating, too. And I know that through our work, work together, on particularly on Doc Gunner, uh, there's some regular good old-fashioned gumshoe kind of research that you guys do. Pick up the phone and call people and try to – it's not all just – done in the lab with computers, right? Not at all. Not at all. There's there's tremendous power in being in the field, literally, <laughs> in this case. It's really important. But what we want to be sure that folks understand is this is this company's a bit of a different animal entirely. Um, I'm sorry about the copious puns. We just were sort of trained to do that at this point. <laughs> um, coming out of academia, as most of us have in our prior lives or our current lives, we have a real appreciation for the academic scientists such as Dr. Brooks and Dr. Bustamante, who work and live in a world of the university system. And they are these brilliant minds, and they're working in a system that is becoming increasingly difficult to obtain funding um, for their research and for their development. And it affects lots of things. It affects their careers. It affects our ability to see what they've discovered and to use it in a real world. And so what we've tried to do is create a collaboration that not only includes the horse owners, but includes these academic scientists that are such a phenomenal resource. And by sharing data with them and by working hand in hand with them, what we have is a commercially funded research project. And the academic scientists get the feedback and the samples and the the resources they need to provide this research back to everyone in the horse world. They get their publications, we get our horse genetic tests, and the owner gets what they want. Everybody wins. And it's sort of an odd new way to look at things and certainly not a traditional company, but it's what we horse people want. So that's what we're doing. Well, I think that's very cool. And and also a great lead-in to ask a couple of questions of Dr. Brooks. I um, I read a little bit about the different areas of research you've been in, and Chris this is, has given us an overview of sort of the business of genetic testing and how that all works. But I'm curious about your world as an academic scientist. Chris just mentioned 
and the kind of academic research you are doing, what does that look like? I know right now, in particular, let's say you're right now you're in, involved in um, some breed work, I think. But tell me a little bit about your research current and and just what your life as a academic scientist entails on a day to day basis. <laughs> Well, Julie, right now I'll tell you, life is is a, still a little different. Um, we we had to do an, an entire uh, research shutdown for a short period of time this spring for uh, pandemic mitigation measures, and I'm still teaching most of my classes um, by remote. Uh, we have some live animal labs. I teach horse health class, and and there's just no way to learn that other than with a horse. So. Um, and that's one of the things that's very special about the University of Florida is that we still have a big program built on teaching with real live horses. Um, so we wanted to get our students back connected with their horses again as fast as we could. And the great news is right now we don't think horses can get COVID. So they're safer with their horses than they are with their <laughs> friends, right? So Yeah, that's for sure. Things are... <laughs> They're a little different right now, but in general, you know, my program, um, we we try to to work on the development side to identify new ways to apply genomic tools to benefit the health, welfare, and performance of horses. And I really rely on our horse people and our industry stakeholders to tell me what what areas of of horse management they most need new strategies to help them do do things better. So, you know, that's really how we got into doing some laminitis work is that we had um, an overwhelming number of horse owners contacting us who were struggling with laminitis and had heard that it might run in family lines and, and things like that. So um, we've had a, no- a number of interesting papers come out, uh, mostly in the Arabian horse, just because we we need to to do what we can to keep our genetic background constant through our studies. So we had to focus on one breed instead of many breeds, and and we've had some good success there. We have a, a couple of new markers that just came out this summer, actually, and had one that we published previously that identifies some some risk for obesity and laminitis. But I'll tell you, my favorite project right now. You know, we've we've done a lot of work focusing on diseases because I think they sort of rose to the surface as one of the the first, um, t- you know, targets for these fancy genomic tools. But I, I'm a horse person, and um, and while g- diseases are important, you know, at the end of the day, I'd like to focus on something a little bit more positive <laughs> in nature. And I think it's time that we start to work to breed our horses. You know, we need to work smarter, not harder, in breeding horses, especially in tough economic times, you know. Uh, if we're going to create an animal that could be with us easily for 30 years, I think we need to use every tool in our box to get as close a match to what we need as we can, because we just don't need any more horses that are having a hard time finding jobs or, or finding homes or may even be a danger to themselves and others. So along those lines, um, we started a new project when I, well, I, we really started at Cornell. I have to be honest there. We had some great collaborators up there too, but we're focusing on behavioral traits um, because, you know, this this is something that every day, uh, every horse owner or groom or manager or veterinarian um, interacts with. And I would argue it's actually the most valuable economic trait in a horse because 
you know, they can be ridiculously talented show jumpers or racehorses and amazing athletes. But if they try to kill you every time you come in the stall or, or you know, refuse to ride them. But if nobody can ride, ride them. them. <laughs> right. Then nobody's going to appreciate that talent at all. And I And we all can tell stories of some fantastic, kind, generous soul of a horse that we have poured buckets and buckets of money into trying to keep them sound and trying to keep them healthy as they struggled through whatever challenges that they brought with them. And we went to all that effort just because they had a fantastic temperament that, that, you know, was just such a rare find, you know, you keep going with it. Right. So I feel like those behavioral things just seem to trump it all. And, um, and it, that's a real challenge scientifically. I think it's probably one of the hardest topics I could have chosen from a scientific standpoint, because how do you quantify that, right? How do we measure things like temperament? And especially with all that environmental kind of interaction, yeah. both you know, with the world around them and with the trainer or the human that might be with them at that yeah. time. Well, it's, um, you know, it's the whole nature versus nurture question. Um, but I think it's particularly, and I, I don't know, really horses is all I know, but I'm not sure everybody appreciates how fast horses learn and how, uh, you know, one, one incident a horse can learn and then that becomes, you know, what we think is a temperament trait is actually learned. And um, so, yeah, I can't imagine a more uh, vague, uh, broad topic to try to research and <laughs> and quantify in genetics, but what what are you looking at in the yeah. behavioral trait? I'm definitely a glutton for punishment there, that's for sure. I, I just, you know, <laughs> have to have a challenge. Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> the angle we're taking is this. Um, first of all, we have a fantastic opportunity here at the University of Florida because we do still breed and raise horses. Um, so we have a, a full crop of between 10 to 20 young stock uh, that we work with every year. Those uh, weanlings come in and are part of our education program. They help to teach. And these are Arabian? Our, our students. These are stock horses. Okay. Nope. Just just quarter horses, some Appaloosas, occasionally paint horse, stock horses like that. At one point okay. in time, they did, they did have some other breeds. We've raised Arabians. We've raised some standard breads many years ago, had some fantastic standard breads, had some thoroughbreds actually recognized for their um, achievements. And right now we're focusing on stock horses. Um, this, they're the easiest to market, really. Sure. They're being sort of a general purpose animal, we can pull in a broad audience. But So these young horses are nice to work with because we have a fairly uniform environment, at least from from gestation on up until uh, about two years of age when we sell them at auction. If you're looking to buy a horse, I'll throw that out there. The University of Florida sells in April. Um, but so for that young, critical sort of formation kind of time period, we at least get to keep them here at school with us. And that helps to limit a number of variables. And we also get to sure. incorporate a lot of our students into our research projects. So these kids get some experience with, you know, behavioral quantification and genomics while working on their degrees, which is nice. So that helps that we have a, 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 a full crop to work with them. I don't have to travel to various farms where they might have, you know, slightly different environments or different training schemes. Sure. Like well, they're handling the other strategies and regulated. Oh, yes. Yeah. All oh, those things. All those things. So 
we've broken behavior down into some of the very simplest components. So our project focuses right now on the startle reflex. So this is that reaction if somebody sneaks up behind you and kind of gooses you in the ribs, you know, you jump. And, and you jump before you have time to think about it, right? So it's a subconscious reaction, and that makes it less influenced by learning. Um, and sure. in humans and mice, um, that means that among many behavioral measures, it often has a large genetic component because it is just a subconscious reflex. So um, mm-hmm. we're ca- trying to start at the most basic, easiest level. What we found um, so far in some work presented by my PhD student, Barkley Powell, at a, a conference last January is that um, so we can observe uh, when we, we show horses an, an umbrella, we just uh, open it right in front of their noses as they're eating a snack one day. It's a little bit evil, but um, all in the name of science, right? <laughs> so we surprise horses with an opening umbrella. And we can observe among those horses that we kind of have two types of horses, those who are immediately fearful and those who don't mind it so much as weanlings, as, you know, four, five, six-month-old foals. They kind of care or they don't care. And that, that's largely um, reflexive, and we can see a strong genetic component in that. And then among those who are fearful, you have those who will really uh, start to react and run around and and get very upset, and then you have a second group that kind of back up, think about it for a minute, and maybe return to the pan, and that has less of a genetic component. So if you have a horse who's naturally fearful, how they handle that fear is a real opportunity in terms of training. Um, Sure. That basic, you know, is there default switch fear or, or not to fear, that's that's uh, in Barclay's work was about sixty percent due to genetics, and wow, big slice of the pot, right? So you can imagine on pre-purchase exams or in rescue situations, you know, knowing is this horse have a, 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 a ticklish, you know, hair trigger on them, or, or are they going to be pretty solid? That that could help a lot to find horses. Really sure. Durable. Absolutely. You know, I mean, they. I could be a millionaire if I had a, a formula for de-spooking horses, uh, which, by the way, I think I do. Um, but <laughs> the this really goes back to that age-old question that horse owners always ask each other: is like, well, what does your horse do when he spooks? At, you know, and you've got the quarter horse spook where they just plant all four feet, and then you've got the full. Full on Arab spook, which is a you know one eighty and a bolt. Um, so, it, it, I mean, is it real? Is is what you're talking about related to that? Well, you know, often when we hear you know these kind of kind of um, stereotypes that come from from horsedom, uh, they often have uh, you know they're they're not they're they're often elaborated a bit because you know horse people they like to they can spin some <laughs> yarn but but the root of it is often in some trends that legitimately can be quite true so you know you're talking about um, the type of spook if we're doing dealing with something that's sixty percent genetic you know that those alleles could vary in frequency uh, from one end of the spectrum to the other between two distantly related breeds of horse like a quarter horse and and an Arab. So there definitely could be something to that. And then you're also talking about two entirely different physiologies. So 
you know, the quarter horse is is more of a, a sprint type animal. You know, he's probably not so inclined to, to gallop off into the sunset because he knows <laughs> he's going to run out of gas. Versus that Arabian who says, you know what, I'm not going to be so quick off the off the start line here, so I'm going to start going now because I know if I go about ten miles, I'll be okay. <laughs> Um, so there, there could be um, some additional layers on that, especially as you mm-hmm. start to consider all the different ways that our our horses differ from one another. But um, you know, it's those behavioral, those neurological traits that I think tend to capture my interest most. So that's where we're we're sure. working now to try to start to decipher things just a bit. Well, me too. And then, so I just have one question for my own clarification: Is the startle reflex connected to the fly response or the same thing or different? Um, well, you know, when we say fight or flight, that's our that's our colloquial term. We're really describing complex behaviors that happen after the startle, right? Um, so startle mm-hmm. reflex, that begins within milliseconds of that uh, perceiving that novel stimulus. So that circuitry is initiated long before the horse even has time to engage those hindquarters to execute any kind of of flight. Mm -hmm. So we're working very early on, but I think the two are definitely interconnected, right? So Mm -hmm. if you don't perceive new things as fearful, you don't need to go down the equation to start considering, do I fight or do I run, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. uh, that just creates another question in my mind. And so (laughs) then... Is there a split second when the horse, uh, between being startled and reacting, considering should he engage flight? I mean, and I just say that because we know horses are flight animals. He could engage fight, but um, is there a moment between the startle and the and the reaction where he's actually thinking, or is this strictly an instinctive behavior at that moment? Well, now you're getting into some really, really complex kind of things, you know, and it's 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 um it's tough to say in horses. So our best models uh, models are going to be humans and mice, and um, I think here's where we start to get a lot more of nurture involved into things. So in both humans and mice, we can show really well that uh, through activities like habituation, you can start to dampen down uh, those post-startle behaviors for sure, but even to some degree, just the startle response itself. So um, it's going to, it comes a lot through practice and it's not always, you know, um, you say, is he thinking about, do I flee or do I not flee? That's probably, you know, we've got to go three or four seconds out before we get to the, to the point where you have a moment for conscious consideration of the stimulus. But um, early on, post-startle reflex, you definitely are beginning to incorporate things that he has learned in his history as mm-hmm. he, you know, makes a decision about whether to toss mm-hmm. the rider or not. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> if I may, I, I think I understand where you're going with this. And if your real question is, if I know the genetic predisposition of my horse, can I adjust my training methodology to better head off disaster? Is that what sure, you're asking? Sure, isn't that always the question? <laughs> I, 
In my opinion, not as a as a world renowned uh, geneticist, I would say yes. <laughs> That's definitely the feedback that we've had from our owners when they when they learn things about their animals from the genetic side. Uh, actually, was it? I think it was wasn't it Jeff Petska, Sam, who was saying he's all about the predictive behavior so he can adjust his training for that animal. Sure. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think, you know, the, the one reason horses have such a variety of behaviors is, is I think, because we, we don't select them to do just one thing. We select them to do lots of things, including some athletic activities that really benefit from having fast reflexes, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, maybe that horse that has that hair trigger and has a, a strong startle response you know, in the wrong home, that can become a problem. You know, this is the pony that tosses her rider every time she sees, you know, pink colored flowers in the jump ring. But, you know, in a quarter horse, maybe that animal is fantastically suited to something like cutting, where they need to react very, very quickly in order to Mm -hmm. to really excel. Or they might make a fantastic race horse because they can get out of the gate super quick, (laughs) you know. So, um, and, and the same horses that don't react to my startle umbrella would probably not be suited to those types of activities because, you know, they just have to um, take them a little bit longer to, to get going. So I don't, you know, these tools, I see them really as management tools. Yeah, breeders will be interested in them. If you've got a flighty mare and you want to find a stallion that will help to take a little off the top, sure, may, you know, use them to do that type of thing. But um, I see a lot more promise in, in looking at our young stock and starting them down a path where they have the best opportunities for success based on um, the tools that, that they have right there in their in their DNA. Well, I, you know, often find myself, you know, answering this question, how do I make my horse not look around so much on the trail? And I'm like, well, what kind of horse is yeah. it? And they say quarter horse. Well, how is he bred? Well, he's a cutter. And yeah, well, <laughs> he's bred to notice everything moving in his environment and and keep track of it. And you can't, you know, you can't have things both ways. You can't have right. a horse that's been selectively bred for certain behavioral traits and then not like those traits when you put them somewhere else. And 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 that's basically what you're saying is to plus, you know, deal with this horse as an individual, and um, and it's just that now we have scientific evidence that shows us that well, this you know that's the way this horse is behaviorally inclined. So it's to me this is the most fascinating of all research. So I have questions. Another question for both of you. I, I know that uh, my genetic tests from Edelon have included uh, markers for this curiosity gene. And so we're, we're talking about the startle reflex and, um, you know, fear or flight behavior. Uh, what about the horse's natural curiosity, investigative behavior, and boldness? What about that side of the genetic equation? <laughs> Well, so uh, what you're talking about is a uh, a marker that actually came out of some research that was done almost more than a decade ago, or begun almost more than a decade ago, by a group in uh, Japan. 
that was interested in, in horse behavior. And um, they specifically targeted a gene called a dopamine receptor uh, because this same gene in people had been shown uh, to be linked to a variety of different behavioral traits, uh, most notably things like adventure-seeking behaviors. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Mm. Um, and in dogs, uh, variations in this receptor were also associated with some things uh, like particular types of aggression. So, you know, we know uh, about dopamine in a variety of animals. And, it, you know, this is a, a chemical messenger that's important in the reward systems of our brain. And as that in that role, it influences things like our motivation to do stuff, our memory and our attention span, um, a variety of different uh, body sort of functions are, are sort of regulated by this neurotransmitter dopamine. So differences in the shape of its receptor can influence um, how our behaviors are shaped. You know, it's not going to be an on and off switch, but it definitely is going to help to be a guardrail to redirect us one direction or another. And given that they, we've observed some really large effects of variations in this particular pathway in dogs and humans, it made a lot of sense to go and do it in horses. So um, it was a fantastic piece of work. It was just a little unfortunate that the work really didn't get um, shown to horse people or wasn't available uh, for horse people to use as a genetic test they could incorporate in their management for decades, um, literally. <laughs> just for lack of good translation out into the horse industry. So um, this is one of the well-published uh, genetic markers we've kind of pulled out of the archives and brought out on, uh, into commercial availability um, because it, it is such a critical kind of trait for horse owners. So um, when the, the Japanese researchers originally did the study, they considered a diverse set of behaviors um, in their in their work, everything from how well does this horse load on a trailer to how well does it tolerate um, veterinary uh, examinations like drawing blood, that, those types of things. And um, they based their study on responses from the animal's groom. So these were the humans that reacted with those horses every single day, uh, really knew them inside and out. And across the sampling of many hundreds of animals, they examined the overall trends, so which horses tended to be a little bit more high-strung, and those that tended to be a little quieter and more people-oriented. So once they identified trends across all these hundreds of horses, then they went and looked to see uh, which ones correlated with variations they knew existed in the dopamine receptor. And one of those uh, traits that they, they uh, found a strong statistical correlation to was uh, aligned with aspects of their groom survey that seemed to describe a horse who was sort of curious and interested in new things and very people-oriented. And the opposite end of that scale is what they called a vigilant horse. So this would be the horse who was a little standoffish about new things, but very protective um, of itself. You know, the, the horse that, that might be um, outstanding on the hill in the paddock, keeping a lookout while his friends might be lying down sleeping. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's a very exciting area of study because we know a lot about the neurochemistry of this particular pathway based on 
how this pathway works in human psychology and, and behavior. Um, and, you know, I think it, it's been shown in a couple of additional studies since then to still influence horse behavior in a variety of different ways. So we're still quantifying exactly how this particular pathway kind of shifts and redirects the trends and, and how a horse sort of gets through its, its daily life. But um, it's certainly a great place uh, to start if you're interested in behavior um, and interested sure. in a particular horse. And, you know, if you want a, a, a pocket pony, then definitely the, the two forms of curiosity might be the way to go. But um, if you want an extremely careful jumper, or or you want a horse you know is never going to step on a rattlesnake out on the trail, uh, the vigilance isn't necessarily a bad trait to have either. You know, that's an animal that's going to have a lot of great self, self-preservation. So, again, it's this sure. idea that there's a, there's a right job for a horse with both types of personality or, or temperament trends. And if we can figure out what those trends are early on, then, then we can um, work with them in a way that helps them be the best horse they can be. Sure. And and I, I believe you have to train all horses as an individual. Now, having said that, I find that I might use similar methods on every horse, but the, the process or the journey of that individual horse can vary quite a lot from one to the other. In other words, I might go take all horses through the same steps, but how we accomplish each step and how quickly we accomplish each step is going to depend more on the individual than the method, so to speak. So um, the double curiosity gene is a great place to segue into this curious horse we have. Um, My foster horse, Doc Gunner, is a four-year-old paint horse. And I, just a little brief background on him. A lot of, a lot of our listeners will have heard a lot about him already. We've, we've live streamed a lot of the training of this horse. He was initially rescued in December of 2019 um, from a kill pen by an individual who just, uh, a woman who saw one horse in need and thought she could step in and help. And she got him out of that situation and got him, he was pretty beat up and uh, unhealthy and she started nursing him back to health. And as sometimes happens in those situations, as he got healthier, he also got increasingly difficult to handle, and it was determined he he apparently didn't have any training. And so at that time, he was a three-year-old. He's now a four-year-old, coming five soon. And ultimately, he wound up in the hands of the ASPCA, Oklahoma City Regional Care Center, and they decided to work with me on, I, I agreed, I should say, to take this horse into foster training. And one of our main goals there was to promote the idea of fostering horses. Everybody's pretty familiar with the idea of fostering dogs and cats and stuff like that until we find them a permanent home. But fostering of horses is kind of a new area for people to think about. And, and for me, as a horse trainer, a lot, a, lot of, a lot of times the only thing that stands in the way of a horse in need getting adopted is training. And so... I can't adopt every horse that's in need, but what I can do is train horses. And so I decided, you know, I would take a horse every, every now and then and give them a little training 
to help him get on his way to a permanent home. So interestingly, we started this idea and campaign um, right before COVID hit. And at that time, there was a huge need for foster care for horses. And we decided it was a great time to launch a campaign on that. Well, then fast forward five months and the rescues have been emptying out because a lot of people are fostering horses. A lot of people are, a lot more people are adopting horses now post-COVID. So we're now switching our attention to promoting the adoption of horses in need. And um, so I took Doc Gunner back in May. He's been at my place here in Colorado for five months. We have been battling some serious health conditions with this horse, mainly because if we had had the genetic testing sooner, we wouldn't have been battling it. So it was, we we were under the impression that this horse was of a certain heritage in the paint horse industry, quarter horse industry, because of his coloration and because he is deaf. And all of that tends to point to uh, the great reigning horse stallion Gunner, or Colonel Smoke and Gun. And we thought this horse was a descendant of that horse. He looks just like him. He moves just like him. And, he's, and he even seems like he has a temperament like him. And that horse does not, is not a carrier of HYPP, but we found out through genetic testing that my horse, Doc Gunner, my foster horse, is uh, has one marker for HYPP and that we've subsequently discovered that the medical problems we've been battling are actually related to HYPP and a management problem more than anything. So the horse has gotten super healthy. He looks beautiful. Uh, we've learned a lot of other interesting things through the genetic testing, including double markers for curiosity, which explains his temperament a lot. and. You talk about a pocket pony, Dr. Brooks. This horse is the very definition of one. I think he would happily live in, um, sleep in your bedroom if, if you opened the door. And he, you know, he's more interested in people than he is other horses. He's happy. We took him out on his first trail ride the other day alone. And he went, I mean, I say trail ride. We just rode him down the county road, the dirt road we live on. But, he trotted out like he was going somewhere. He's like, you know, he was like excited to be out on the road. He was excited to be out of the arena. He did not once look back at the barn. Now, it helps that he can't hear a single horse whinnying at him. But um, <laughs> I, I've really, <laughs> I, I mean, by the way, I see no, uh, I don't see deafness in horses as a huge liability. It's, uh, and it has as many positive attributes as negatives and but uh, this horse, he really embodies the double curiosity marker. And um, so we've, we've discovered a lot more information about this horse by getting the genetic testing done on him. Last month in my podcast, we talked about all these health markers and these behavioral markers on Doc Gunner and some of the, uh, we talked about the rare, is it Splash White 3 he has, Krista, the cause of deafness? So he has a combination of whites that probably result in his deafness. The splashed white three in combination with the lethal white overo mm -hmm. is probably what's leading to that. Mm -hmm. And so we 
you know, you can see that in his genes. Um, but we went all over through all that the, sort of in detail through his basic genetic testing report last month in the podcast. So people can go back and listen to that if they haven't already and learn a lot about the specific information about Gunner, but it's also information that anyone would get on their horse if um, if they sent in the the uh, test. And so since that time, since we recorded last time, you've been working on some heritage research with this horse to see if we can try to get an understanding of what his breeding is. Since now we know it, what it's not, <laughs> Um, we'd love to see if we can find out more. So what can you tell us about that? Okay. So some of the things that we're looking at for his heritage um, are interesting from a compositional standpoint. What does he look like? How does he move? Why does he behave? All of these things. But also we're kind of exploring to see if we can figure out his composition may be an indication of where he came from. In other words, who are his parents? Who are his siblings? Who are his cousins? And those are some of the things we're actively exploring at the moment. I can tell you that we have definitely found other horses that are fairly closely related to him um, by doing a search through our database. And at this point, I'm confident to say we have, you know, first cousins. I'm not quite convinced about siblings yet, but it's a little bit of a longer process. However, the ancestry portion specifically with his genetic makeup from a world standpoint, in other words, where in the world does his genes come from? I think um, Dr. Brooks has all detailed information here and she can share with you what she sees and what sets him apart from, say, other horses that we have looked at. Awesome. Yeah. So you ladies shared his his ancestry report with me. So I got a chance to take a look and um, I can kind of tell you a little bit about what we found there. Um, well, the first thing I want to mention is that, you know, we get a lot of questions from horse owners who have maybe taken on a rescue horse or bought an unregistered horse, and they, they want to know, can we use DNA to get that horse um, registered? And it's sort of a two-part question, really. So when most people talk about DNA and registration, they're referring to the traditional parentage test, which only used about 20 different markers across the genome. And that test is really useful for identifying cases of false parentage. So you know, a mare who might have swapped foals out in the field with another mare or a situation where mm. a stallion jumped the fence and daddy's not who we thought daddy was. You know, the old, the 20 marker panel was great at excluding parentage, but it could never prove parentage and it cannot prove uh, ancestry or breed. And um, so, so the, the, one of the difficulties we have now is that in order to, to do this type of activity, you have to have one of these big panels with lots of markers. So in particular, Edelon's panel uses thousands of markers across the genome. Um, now, with those thousands of markers, we can definitely look at relatedness in those horses. And so one of the, the second issue we have is, can I get my horse registered with that? Well, part of the problem is, is that um, registries are um, political constructs, not necessarily biological ones. So, you know, most paint horses, paint horses <laughs> you know, they have very similar ancestry, uh, but the whether they belong in one registry or another, you know, that's fighting words right there. So, so we have to sort of um, 
add that caveat that we're biologists, so we can tell you what the biology says, and sometimes that can help you identify a registry. And if that helps you put together the paperwork a registry needed, say if you identify who the stallion owner is and they can go back through their records and they can go, oh, yeah, I did breed my stallion to a, a daughter of Fred in 1986, um, then, then yes, potentially it can help you do that kind of traditional gumshoe work so that you can gather the paperwork that a registry requires. Because, of course, mm-hmm. registries have their rules and uh, not all of them will, uh, inc- you know, make a case for registration standing only on DNA, right? So it's not going to so get you words, that golden ticket. Yeah, the registries that use some kind of DNA verification are, that's not the same thing as the research you guys are doing. That's simplistic. Yeah, and it, exactly. It's, it's doing, yeah, okay. So just so people understand, these are yep. two entirely different animals, to use Krista's favorite phrase there. And um, <laughs> yeah, so we're looking more back across, just like if you did 23andMe, you're, not, you're looking at the whole worldwide population and, and how that horse compares. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, in terms of ancestry, that's what we do. Um, now, we can look at parents as well. So, um, whereas statistically, the 20 markers used in parentage testing will only provide power of exclusion, the thousands of markers that we use um, can prove identity. So, if you had a swatch of hair from a horse who was stolen, and we then find a very similar looking horse in a, in a kill pen, we have enough markers that we can say that, you know, uh, um, with a one in seven billion chance, this is the same horse that provided that original hair sample. Mm-hmm. So it has modern modern applications as well based on the uh, database. And so that was what Krista was alluding to, that um, one of the things that they did is they took uh, Doc Gunner's DNA profile and they compared it to all the horses who've been submitted and their owners have consented to have their uh, profiles out for comparison. And she thinks they're starting to find some family lines. So with some additional work, it's not impossible we might figure out, um, find some relatives of him that would help to give you at least some clue of what his pedigree might, might actually be. But it takes a little bit of time. What we definitely can see right away are those longer-term trends. So um, what type of horses were among his ancestors? So that's what we see in the ancestry report. And and looking at his numbers, like most good stock horses, he has almost half of his ancestry is thoroughbred. Actually, maybe a little bit more than half even. Uh, or, I'm sorry, more than average, about 47%, whereas a lot of stock horses are around 40%. Um, so that certainly gives him a lot of that athleticism that our, our stock horses really sure. utilize in most of their everyday jobs. The other thing and I think you see it in his confirmation. In his, I was going to say the, one, the, the stock horses that tend to have a little bit more thoroughbred are usually the taller, lankier kind of hunter or pleasure type horse and less the really low down cutter ranchy kind of horses. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's an apt description of him. So the other thing that we see in his ancestry that really puts him solidly in that stock horse group that, you know, I'm sure you can see on the outside too, is that he has this mix of Spanish ancestry or Iberian ancestry that he gets from the uh, probably was Spanish colonial type horses, 
um, a little bit of an Arabian type influence in that Near East kind of ancestry. And then he has a large portion, about 20% of a group that we call typically the carriage horse group. Um, and the modern day breed that most uh, best typifies this group here in the United States is often the saddlebred. So it kind of makes sense if you huh. think about how stock horse breeds um, developed, they often were, they needed a horse that, yeah, could go and work cattle, but then could also pull that buggy to church on Sunday, right? And these huh. were the types of horses that they had available to them. They had, you know, maybe some some cavalry horses, maybe some, some Spanish or Iberian horses coming from down south. They certainly, he has a little bit of heavy horse as well, a little bit of draft horse, a little bit of a plow horse out there. Um, and then a little bit of the more stylish uh, carriage horse group, that sort of uh, melting pot that we've pulled together today to create the modern stock horse type breeds where we get a lot of versatility, some athleticism, some durability, and a little bit of style on there to boot. So, so Julie, in, in looking at this composition, I'm curious, I think, I think we addressed this um, kind of quietly before. Do you see there's, there's, a significant portion of carriage horse in him, which would lead us to believe he might be a little more narrow, a little more upright. Do you see that in him? I would say particularly for a, a stock horse type, he he's quite upright. I mean, not upright. He has a very level balance frame and carriage, but he's a little bit of an uphill build. He's, mm-hmm. he's extremely balanced. He's a little uphill. And he's he's a little light on the forehand, and I think that I mean I could picture this horse pulling a carriage just because of his um, you know balance and and lightness on the forehand. But you know I wouldn't say he has an upright build. I said I'd say he has more of a level build. Um, so I, and I certainly um, you know, you definitely see the stock horse characteristics. You definitely see the impressive characteristics on this horse. The booty. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> now that he's now that we've got him healthy, he is putting on the booty like nothing I've ever seen, and he's an eating machine. But he's very refined in the front end. His, you know, mm-hmm. he, his his neck comes out kind of high for a stock horse. It's it's slender and uh, well shaped, well proportioned, and you know he's got a nice shoulder. He's he's narrow at the wither, narrow at the shoulder, for such a a, a big, stocky kind of horse. He's he's tall. He's um, for a stock horse, in my opinion. He, I think I measured him at. Uh, he's a little under fifteen one, but um, you know, so he's kind of leggy. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, he's a beautiful horse and I think pretty well put together confirmationally, but it is an interesting mix in his confirmation. It's our hope that going forward with these, these technologies, um, that Dr. Brooks was, was discussing with you that when someone does step up and, and try to give a horse a hand up that we are able to give them their life back, right? That we could, in essence, pull a, pull a sample, take a look at them, help them with their health, help them figure out where they came from. And maybe if the database grows significantly, we might be able to actually say, hey, 
this is the the uh, son or daughter of this horse and that horse, you can go back and re-register them and they can have a life again as a normal show horse. We all know that um, not every horse ends up homeless due to cruelty. There's There are just circumstances. And if ever before we didn't understand them, we certainly do now with pandemics and hurricanes and fires and just <laughs> what are else during this apocalypse you can think of? There are going to be a number of horses that fall out of society due to circumstance. And if there's anything we can do to help them regain their footing, that's what we want to do. Well, and I think that's exactly what has happened in this case with Doc Gunners, just one horse that found himself um, in transition. He was lucky enough to get sucked into the very extensive rescue network in this country and he's now available for adoption. He's going to make somebody a fabulous horse. He's so he's such a cool horse. He's so much fun to ride. He's been so easy to train once we got past his medical conditions. And the biggest uh, we've we've sunk a lot into this horse on the veterinary side, but the biggest help has been understanding through the genetic testing what his medical conditions were. And then then we had information on which we could manage him better and, and completely get him past that. So now he's available for adoption. We're, we're actively looking at um, people interested in adopting this horse. You can find out more about him by going to myrighthorse.org or you can go to Nexus Equine, that's N-E-X-U-S, equine.org. And you can actually see his listing, see pictures of him. There's some videos up there so you can see for yourself um, the horse we've been talking about. But I think that the information I've learned about this horse in particular through the genetic testing has been invaluable to me as his trainer and as his uh, foster parent. And I know that a lot of people out there might be interested in finding out more about their own horse and how they can get genetic testing. So, Krista, can you share how someone can go about finding out more about Edelon Diagnostics? Um, certainly. Well, there's always a website, EdelonDiagnostics.com, that will lead you down the pathway. There's our Facebook page, which is Edelon DX. DX is short for Diagnostics. Or you can just pick up the phone and call and, and talk to us about it. The number is 650-380-2995. 650-380-2995. And remember, when you do reach out to us, we're horse people just like you are. And it is our pleasure to try and help and answer the questions and see if we can just help one horse at a time, one owner at a time. We are going to get there together. Well, I think that's so awesome, and I thank both of you for your time today. It's just fascinating, and Dr. Brooks, to hear all the research you're involved in, I could talk to you for a week, and I doubt you could satisfy all my questions. <laughs> and I hope, oh, well. to, uh, <laughs> I hope to visit you in Florida someday next time. Uh, when we get back to traveling, I'm going to be down your way for a horse expo next, next spring, I hope. And um, Her place is so cool. It is it is really beautiful. <laughs> is it in the Gainesville area? Yeah, that would be that'd be fantastic. 
Yeah, we'd love to see you down here. We actually we're we're always, we have lots of southern hospitality here at the University of Florida. We always have lots of visitors out to our out to our facilities and meet our horses and our students. So anytime you're in the area, come on by. Well, I'll take that as an invitation, although under pressure. <laughs> so I thank you for the invitation because I would love to come and, and meet you face-to-face and see the facility and see your breeding operation, the research that you do. is so important to horse owners. And, and what Krista just said is really important that when you pick up the phone and call Adeline, somebody answers, it's going to be a horse person at the other end. And even though you are involved in high-level scientific research, and even though, Dr. Brooks, you're working at the highest uh, academic levels and scientific research levels, you're, you're still horse people just like us. And it's so much fun to talk to you and pick your brain and learn more uh, about the science side of behavior and the scientific uh, side of training and modifying behavior. That's my passion in this business. So I thank you both for joining me here today. You can find out more about genetic testing at edelondx.com, so be sure to check that out. Thank you, Krista, and thank you, Dr. Brooks. Thank you for having us. What a pleasure. Well, thanks, thanks Julie, uh, for the invitation. Always a pleasure to, to talk to you. Like you said, I'm, you know, I'm just a horse person, and science were the classes that I, I didn't fall asleep in. So uh, here I am trying to, to do what I can to use our research to, to do something useful, but yeah. Feel free to reach out anytime. Um, we do have a, a website, usequinegenetics.org, and you can email me at the university. We are a big part of the extension system, so horse owners all around the world can uh, reach out and get in touch with us if they have any questions. Thank you so much. Well, again, it's it's really our pleasure. I, I have the, the deepest gratitude for your work, the things that you're doing. Um, and I appreciate the uh, expertise of Dr. Brooks as well and all of the effort together as horse people. Um, and here at Edelon, you know, our mission is just to try to, to help that along and accelerate it in any way possible. And every opportunity that you've provided is deeply appreciated. So, again, my thanks. Feel free to reach out to us. Um, as I said, call, email, text, knock, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> we're always here. We're always obsessing about horses and we're always happy to help. So thanks so much. Thank you both so much. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you're as enthralled by the subject matter as I was. Don't forget to check out adelondiagnostics.com for how to get a DNA report on your horse. Next month on my podcast, I'll tackle another horse training subject to help you find the solutions you need to help make your horse life better. We'll also get back to the popular segment of the podcast called What the Hey Q&A. If you've got questions you'd like me to address on air, please message me on Facebook at Julie Goodnight or email me at podcast at juliegoodnight.com. I enjoy sharing my horse care and horse training experience with you. And I appreciate all your feedback, suggestions, and questions. I love to hear what topics interest you the most. So if you have questions or podcast topics you'd like me to address, please message me at podcast at juliegoodnight.com. 
Thanks for your awesome comments and for the five-star ratings. It helps me out a lot, and it helps us rise in the rankings so more horse lovers like you and me find this podcast. Don't forget to check out my online membership programs. You'll find the solutions you need when you need them. You can subscribe to my full training library or enroll in a horsemanship short course or join at the premier level, the Interactive Academy, where you receive assignments and personalized coaching from me. Just go to signin.juliegoodnight.com and join. I'm Julie Goodnight. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to enjoy the ride. juliegoodnight.com slash academy for more in-depth training advice. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate your good review on iTunes so more horse lovers just like you can find my podcast. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride.